welcome to the Trial Tall Podcast. I'm your host, Berta Terre Torres, a former researcher and a science communications officer at the Emerson Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. In this show, we explore the clinical trial landscape by talking to the clinicians, researchers, and patients that are behind the work we do. If you're interested in learning how our research can help improve healthcare in the UK and around the world, this is the podcast for you. This year is a special one for the unit, as we are celebrating our 25th anniversary. That's 25 years of smarter studies, global impact and better health. In 2001, we began running one of the world's largest trials, the UK Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening, or UKCTOX. We run it in partnership with the Institute for Women's Health at UCL. The trial looked at different ways of detecting ovarian cancer earlier in more than 202,000 women. Unfortunately, the approaches tested in UK CTOX didn't save lives. We have a whole episode explaining the long-term results of the trial. You can listen to that episode via link in the description. In today's episode, we will discuss the main challenges that the UK CTOX trial faced in recruitment and various aspects of design and analysis, and how the team addressed them. Although the trial was designed in the late 90s, many of the approaches and challenges are still relevant today for many trials, particularly screening trials. We will talk about the lessons learned from conducting such a large trial, which are published on the NIHR website. For that, I will be speaking to Usha Menon, Professor of Gynecological Oncology at the Emerson CTU at UCL and one of the chief investigators of UK CTOX. I'm Usha Menon, and I co-led the trial in the first decade with Professor Jacobs, and then continued as chief investigator during the extended follow-up. When planning a clinical trial, it's important to identify one main research question that the trial will try to answer. This is also called the primary outcome. So what was the main research question for UKC talks? So the main result, we were trying to find out whether screening would decrease the number of deaths from ovarian cancer in the screen arm compared to the no screening arm, which we call the control arm, uh, this primary outcome determines how big the trial needs to be. And usually we specify it at the start of the trial. Uh, we were looking to decrease deaths by 35% between the control arm and the screen arm. And how did you decide how many people needed to take part to ensure that the trial would provide meaningful results? That is called the sample size calculation in trials. We tried to estimate how many participants need to take part in the trial and how long the trial needs to be. For that, what we do is we determine statistically what numbers would give us the power. And by that, I mean we can specify 80% or 90% surety that whatever result we got 
was true. To do that, in UKC talks, we had to get a certain number of deaths in the control arm, the nose screening arm, and then in the screening arm, the deaths needed to be 35% less. So if there were 100 deaths in the control arm, it needed to be 65 in the screen arm. And then we had to make sure that that number was big enough for us to be certain that it was a true result and not a random result. So, so the key, as you can understand, is the control arm or the nose screening arm. We specified beforehand the number of deaths we need to get in that arm. In UKC talks, that number was 222. When 222 women had died of ovarian cancer in the control arm, we could then look at the study arm to see whether 35% less had died in the study arm. And how did you estimate the total number of participants that you needed to make sure that 222 women would die in the control arm during the course of the trial? We used the national statistics because we know how many women die of ovarian cancer every year. At that point, when we started UKC Talk, which is 2000, that number was 37 ovarian cancer deaths per 100,000 women. So using that, we thought there would be 37 deaths every year. So one could calculate to get 222 deaths, how many years it would take in the control arm. And that was how we determined how many years we would follow up, how many women we would have in the trial. But we ran into two problems. These are problems which are very common in trials. So it is not just our trial. What we did was we just took the national statistics and then used that to estimate when we would reach 222 deaths in the control arm. But in reality, we had something called the eligibility criteria effect. And what I mean by that is only women who did not have ovarian cancer were allowed to join the trial. And really, if you think about it carefully, most women die from ovarian cancer about five years after they are diagnosed with the disease. So as you can imagine, in the first two, three years, we had very few deaths from ovarian cancer in the trial because only included in the trial were women who developed ovarian cancer after they had joined the trial. So that was the first issue. When we were five years down the line, we could see in the control arm that there were not enough deaths as we had predicted there would be in the nose screen arm. So if we had stopped the trial, as we had thought, at seven years from randomization, your participation in the trial is over. And that is how we had conceived the trial. But it would be that if we had done that, we would not have got the power uh, to get a true result because the number of deaths that needed to occur in the no screening arm or control arm would not have happened. The other issue that we came across and which we had not anticipated, but is that um, when we invite people to take part in a screening trial or a prevention trial, it is those women who are interested in health, in screening interventions, in contributing to the, let's say, better health decisions who take part in the trial. So they are inherently 
somewhat different from the whole population. And they probably do many more healthy things. They probably don't smoke. They eat more healthy food. They might do more exercise. And we could see that again, about five, six years down the line, when we looked at the no screening arm, where we had done nothing, women had just joined the trial. You could see in that arm, when we compare to the national statistics, deaths were down from cardiovascular disease, from respiratory disease, many cancer incidents were down, uh, the heart attack rate was lower. And this we call the healthy volunteer effect. Uh, we did not take that into account. And so again in the controller, um, that was the second reason why events were lower. So for both these reasons, we had to then continue the trial for more years than we thought initially. Now that you are aware of how the eligibility criteria effect and the healthy volunteer effect can influence your predictions of the size of your trial, what would you do differently? I would suggest that it's really important. Most of us always do look at national statistics to estimate events in the control arm, but it's important to add a factor uh, for the healthy volunteer effect. And if you did have an eligibility criteria that might impact on your primary outcome, the key result, then you need to also consider that and make uh, some calculations for that. In UKC Talks, however, you encountered these two problems once you were a few years into the trial. So how did you overcome them whilst the trial was still running? The main issue was that in the control arm, the only way we could reach that target of 222 deaths from ovarian cancer, which we could look to see if we had saved lives in the screen arm, to reach that, it was only possible to, in two ways. One is recruiting more women into the trial, and two is by waiting for longer, because each year some women died from ovarian cancer, unfortunately. Because we had already finished recruitment, it would have been very hard for the centers to again restart recruitment. Recruitment had been finished two, three years prior. So we decided that we would continue the trial continue follow-up of the control arm till the time when the number of events that had happened occurred. But then there was an issue. What would we do with the screened arm? Now, if we stop the screening and the women didn't have screening, then, of course, the screen arm would look very much like the control arm without screening. So there would be what we call a dilution effect. So we continued screening. So finally, what we did was... The women were recruited between 2001 and 2005 instead of six years of screening. We asked each woman if she would continue attending for screening every year till December 2011. So this meant that some women had seven years of screening and some women had 11 years of screening, depending on which year they joined the trial. And then we followed up for three more years. So just to say that if you're planning the trial, you can now look at the healthy volunteer effect in different sorts of cohorts, like in our study, you can look at the UK Biobank cohort where they invited a lot of people, and then you can see the people who joined the trial and look at their mortality data. So this is really very much more in a 
screening or prevention trial. Because in a treatment trial, if I had cancer and you offered me a trial, it is most likely more people take part. It's just that in these big population trials, usually like it's somewhere between 10 and 20% of those who are invited who take part. Another issue that UK CTOX faced was to do with the analysis of deaths between the screening arm and the no screening arm. The original statistical analysis was defined in 1999, when the trial started. During all the years that the trial was running, the team had more data available on screening trials and ovarian cancer mortality. At that point, it was clear that the original statistical approach wasn't ideal anymore and it needed to change. How did you implement that change? We did change the approach for a statistical reason. And that is very trial-specific and specific to screening trials. What we did was, we had an opinion, of course, and lots of discussions in the trial management team as well as in the trial steering committee. But to make sure that we were not biased in any way, we asked 12 international experts in statistics, in clinical trials and in screening, to consider the issue that we were facing and to come up with a solution. And they sort of came to the same conclusions that we as a team had come to looking at all the evidence. And they supported us and they suggested we change the approach. We then published the entire dilemma and the pros and cons of changing the approach and why we change the approach and the opinion of the various independent members. And I think it was that publication with the transparency about the process that made it possible to do this change. So what I want to highlight is if it's scientifically justified, you can make a change. What is important is that it's absolutely transparent and you try to take into account as much independent opinion as possible. Uh, because of this process, when we finally analyzed the data, there was no question about the change of approach. Looking now into the challenges of conducting such a large trial, one relevant aspect to consider is recruitment. UK CTOX aimed to recruit 200,000 women, which is an enormous number of participants. How did you make sure you could recruit all these women? Uh, we had to recruit 200,000 women, and uh, we were perhaps one of the first trials to use electronic health records. This is now much more freely available and much better organized through NHS Digital and NHS Digi trials. And many of the current trials are looking to use these resources for recruitment. But back in 2000, we had to do it a slight modification of what is available now. We requested and we were given personal data of the women and their GPs as well as their NHS number women aged 50 to 74, who we could then uh, mail merge and send personal invitation letters to. And what we did was just so that women were not kept waiting for a long time if they said they would like to join a trial, 
we were transferred lists of five to 10,000 women every three months from NHS age six registry. These were women living around the 13 centers who were taking part in the trial. Because we were able to send out so many invites, we were able to ensure that we had enough women to join the trial. And how long did it take to recruit 200,000 women? In uh, reality, it took us five years. That was the, we had thought four, but it took us 4.8 years. Because recruitment lasted five years, that meant that some women joined the trial in 2001, but others in 2006. How did you ensure that the first woman and the last woman that entered the trial were kept informed in the same way? So the thing we were committed to from the beginning was one that all the women would receive the same kind of information, whether they came to Belfast or Nottingham or London or Portsmouth. And the other thing was that uh, uh, whether they were recruited in 2001 or in 2005, the quality of information and the informed consent process was similar. So to do that, again, you know, we undertook some measures, which again are very probably widely used these days. At that time, you must remember, there was only video. So we made a video where some of the members of our team and their parents, really, and aunts and grandmothers, because we wanted older women, sat around and asked questions and discussed the trial. And uh, we had a BBC team help us make that video. And we set up monitors in all the trial recruitment centers and the women would come in groups and see the video before they participated in a group discussion. So this was the other thing we had. We had a group discussion following the video so that at least um, some of the quieter women would have an opportunity to hear the questions asked by others. And this, after this, we uh, went on to the usual one-to-one recruitment discussion with a nurse and the signing of the consent. Another element to consider when thinking about recruitment is the role of patient advocacy. How are the interactions with patient groups and charities in UK CTOX? We had a lot of interaction because the whole question and trial was really driven by the patient groups. It was because of them, the ovarian cancer charities, that we had extra leverage, really, when uh, we put in the grant application. There was a real desire from them that we should have a trial to see if anything could be done to decrease the mortality from ovarian cancer. So we had members from these uh, patient groups sitting on various of our committees Uh, having both oversight as well as contributing to the discussions and they looked at our patient information material. But I do feel that if we did it again now, we might have had even more interaction. And were there any other key elements that help such a big trial run smoothly? I think in any trial, you have to be very proactive. The thing we did was we built a trial management system, which was more than just a 
EDC or electronic data capture system. It of course captured data, but it had a lot of functionality and it was automated and would do many things on its own so that things were done timely. So, you know, it was like a record of everything of the participants. As I said, you know, we used to get these lists uh, from the various primary care trusts from the NHS registers, the lists of women. And we would just upload these lists into the trial management system. The system would then print, send out letters. And as soon as you ticked that the lady had responded, it would automatically schedule appointments, send out letters to those women, invite them. And what we did was uh, to make sure that the recruitment clinics were full and we were meeting uh, monthly targets. We would vary the recruitment. So we were every week monitoring recruitment at the various centers and forecasting what it might be. Because one of the things was, of course, women accepting the invitation. The other was women turning up for recruitment. But in addition, what we did was it was clear that some centers were struggling. So we had what we called blitz clinics, and this was all hands on board. The entire central team at UCL, the UKC Talks team, all of us would go down to that center. And the consultant at that center, that is the PI at that center, other additional kind of fellows at that center, the team at the center, all of us on a Saturday and Sunday would do an open recruitment clinic where we would have tried to catch up, make up and recruit 200 women in the course of two days or we never hit 200 but maybe about 150. It also you know created a very good sense of camaraderie. It was clear that we were one team with one goal as opposed to a Nottingham team, a Manchester team, a Belfast team. So or, you know we shared our problems and we did help each other. We tried to make sure that there were no lagging centers that everyone was moving together. Once the recruitment of 200,000 women was completed, how did you ensure that all these women stayed in the trial during the following years? For retention, uh, one of the things was our women were older and it was very early in the internet era. So I would say perhaps only one-sixth of them had email addresses. Uh, we didn't even try to use the email addresses, which would be the default now. For us, the retention was most important. One of the control women who had anyway signed that we could uh, follow them up through the NHS registries. But in the screen cohort, we needed to ensure that they came year on year for screening. And to do that, we gave them as much flexibility as we could with regards to changing the appointments. They could ring and reschedule appointments because of our trial management system. So everything was live on our trial management system. So I could look up somebody's appointment at Belfast and if they asked me to change it, I could look for another appointment. And on the phone from London, I could change the appointment. The rule was if a phone rang, whoever you are, you must pick it up because mostly it was participants ringing and we were very clear that the whole of compliance was based on interaction, our, our, how we behaved and how 
uh, welcome we made the participants when they came for screening. And I must say, like we had great teams at the centers. They knew many of the women by name. So each of the centers finally had about 15, 20,000 women of whom 10,000 were coming for screening every year. But within a couple of years, many of the we had the st nursing staff and the receptionists who stayed with us quite often throughout the trial. So they knew some of the women, many of the women by name, and they would chat with the women and help them as best they can. So it was mainly because of the interaction between us and the participants that we had very high retention right till the end of the trial. The UK CTOX trial ended in 2020, and the main results were published the following year. Since then, the team has been working to explore and manage a huge collections of samples and data that were obtained during the trial. These are an invaluable resource to help advance our understanding of ovarian cancer. You know, as uh, during the course of UKC talks, we had a biobank generated of data and samples donated by the women that could be uh, used for uh, secondary research, looking for new tests, understanding the natural history of disease. And this is not limited just to ovarian cancer, because these 200,000 women developed all sorts of diseases and cancers in the course of the 16 years that we followed them up. And so while we are most interested in finding a better test for ovarian cancer using these samples, uh, there are groups we work with who are working on pancreatic cancer, on breast cancer, on colon cancer. So it's a very rich source for early detection. And this is the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to find out more about the insights from running UKC Talks, you can read the full article on the NIHR website. You will find a link in the description, or you can visit our UKC Talks website at ukctalks.mrcctu.ucl.ac.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at MRCCTU and on LinkedIn at MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL for the latest updates. See you in the next episode of the Trial Talks.